Well, good afternoon. I'm Patrick Eddington, research fellow here at the Cato Institute. I want to welcome those of you who are here in the auditorium, the Hayek Auditorium, uh, at our building here in Washington, D.C., as well as those of you who are watching uh, online, either uh, on our website or via C-SPAN. I believe that they uh, are, in fact, on site here um, recording today. Just want to go over a few admin items before we actually uh, get to the meat of the program here. I would ask that everybody make sure that your cell phones are turned off. Uh, or at least in silent mode, and that applies to smartphones as well, and for that matter, any other electronic device that might make a somewhat annoying noise when we're in the middle of having our discussion here. Uh, we will have a Q&A portion as we get uh, close to the end of this, and when that goes down, I'll ask folks to please wait to be called upon, wait for the microphone so everyone in the audience has an opportunity uh, to hear you, and then I'll ask you to announce your name and affiliation. Our topic uh, today is this particular absolutely fascinating and terrifying book, Eyes in the Sky, The Secret Rise of Gorgon Stare and How It Will Watch Us All by Arthur Holland Michelle. And I have to point out the little digital version of what I'm calling the Eye of Sauron from the Lord of the Rings. I think it's very, very apt uh, for, the, for the content of this book and for what we're going to be discussing today. It was literally six years ago this month that an NSA contractor turned whistleblower by the name of Edward Snowden burst upon the world scene with his absolutely amazing revelations about mass warrant, uh, warrantless government surveillance that had been taking place during the so-called War on Terror era. And of course, there were literally dozens, if not hundreds, of stories about Snowden and his revelations that poured out from 2013 and, in some respects, even continued to, the, to, that, uh, to this particular day. That's all been about electronic surveillance in terms of the listening variety, listening in on our cell phone conversations, intercepting our text messages, things of that nature. Our guest today brings us what may be as scary or even scarier uh, technological news, which is the Tom Cruise minority report scenario is not exactly so far-fetched anymore. And in fact, uh, the technology we're going to talk about today was actually inspired by a different movie, which I, I won't steal his thunder on, Arthur's thunder on. Let me get around and actually introduce our guest. Uh, over here on the far wing is, is our, uh, our, our guest today, Arthur Holland Michelle, who is a journalist, researcher, and founder and co-director of the Center for the Study of the Drone at Bard College. Arthur has written for Wired, Al Jazeera, Vice, U.S. News, Fast Company, Motherboard, the list goes on and on. He is a co-author of The Drone Primer, a compendium of key issues and drone sightings and close encounters in the national airspace. Uh, sitting directly next to me is Jenna McLaughlin, who is the national security and investigations reporter for Yahoo News, where she focuses on the intelligence community, foreign policy, and other issues. Uh, Jenna has previously covered intelligence and national security for CNN, foreign policy, The Intercept, and Mother Jones, following her graduation from Johns Hopkins in 2014. And in between, uh, uh, or next to Jen, I should say, is Sean Vicka, who is policy counsel at Demand Progress. Sean has served as legislative counsel for Credo Action and Fight for the Future, federal policy manager at the Sunlight Foundation, and as a Google Policy Fellow at Georgetown Law's Institute for Public Representation. In addition to serving as policy counsel for Demand Progress and the Demand Progress Education Fund, he also serves as director of the Fourth Amendment Advisory Committee, uh, which he helped co-found on Capitol Hill. Um, with uh, folks you may have heard of, Representative Zoe Lofgren of California, 
uh, and former Representative uh, Ted Poe of Texas. His analysis and commentary on privacy and technology have been published in Ars Technica, the Chicago Tribune, the Christian Science Monitor, the Washington Post, and again, on and on. The legislative fights that he's been a part of include passing reforms to the, uh, to the Freedom of Information Act, and most recently, the June 2019 effort in the House to rein in Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, Section 702 Mass Surveillance Program. So my thanks and welcome to all of you. Arthur, I'd like to begin by having you tell us how you developed this obsession with drones. Oh. Um, so, um, well, first, I, I'd just like to thank the Cato Institute for having me. I feel tremendously honored to be uh, here uh, with such a venerable panel. Um, it really does mean a lot uh, to be back in this space. Um, and it's been quite an incredible journey uh, when you think about the fact that uh, not seven years ago, I was a pretty scrappy undergraduate at Bard College, a small liberal arts school in upstate New York. And every morning, I would read the Times in the breakfast cafeteria, uh, and there would invariably be a story about drone strikes in undeclared war zones. And if not that, then there would be a story about how drones were increasingly being used in the domestic civilian airspace, both of which raised unfamiliar and urgent questions. Now, for my part, I was doing my research as a history student about immigration to northern New Jersey in the 1960s. But I was sitting in a bar one day between my junior and senior year, um, and suddenly I had an idea. I have to study drones. And I have to create something called the Center for the Study of the Drone. And I returned to the college, and I told the administration, I told the faculty members, we must do this. And because they are likely completely insane, they allowed me to go forward with it. And we created this little research experiment. And the rest, so to speak, is, uh, is history. And I guess our timing was, was, uh, was fortunate because we established ourselves at a time when people began to ask these questions in a very broad public forum. And those questions have only become more complex and more challenging and more urgent as time has gone on. And, and so, you know, I, I spent my time at CIA as an imagery analyst essentially during the very tail end of the Cold War period into the mid-90s essentially. So I was used to working with both air breather systems like the U-2 uh, and also, you know, very highly classified satellite imagery programs, some of which I can talk about. Um, a lot of which I still can't, unfortunately, even though it's been nearly 25 years since I've actually been actively doing any of that. But what you say in the book about this whole issue of the soda straw mm. in terms of trying to actually see something from above, that applies to pretty much any kind of conventional imaging platform, including uh, even relatively advanced satellites. The things that I can point you to that are in the unclassified arena now are, are things like digital globes satellites. Um, these things all operate in what we call the electro-optical spectrum, right? So it's the spectrum that you and I, our eyes, use on a daily basis to see each other and to see the world around us. There are other spectrums, of course, that are of great interest uh, from a military standpoint, from a law enforcement uh, standpoint. And that includes infrared, shortwave infrared, and I want to talk about some of that in some detail later. But what I find what I, what I really find kind of terrifying about this is we're now out of the, you take a picture here, you take a picture there, 
you're talking about this, this WAMI technology. Tell us what that acronym W-A-M-I WAMI stands for and what it actually means in real terms. Sure. Well, I should say that as a drone researcher, I spend a lot of time thinking about pretty frightening technologies. But in a way, nothing kept me up at night the way this technology did. This, this Gorgon stare, as, as its sort of most formidable uh, iteration is called. So as, as Pat was mentioning, uh, over the course of the Cold War, the sort of pinnacle of aerial surveillance were these satellite systems that took still images. Once you moved into a more sort of counter-terrorism style paradigm, you want to fill up, follow individual people. And so for that, you want moving images. You want a video camera. But the, the aerial surveillance video systems that, by and large, are in use uh, operate under what's called the sort of soda straw principle. Think of them as telescopes. They're very good at watching a very narrow area in very high fidelity. But if something happens outside of the area that you're looking at, uh, well, you're out of luck. An example that was given to me by one source is that um, the, the Air Force and several agencies were tracking uh, a, a senior insurgent leader who was in a convoy of vehicles. And they knew that he was definitely in the convoy, but they didn't know which vehicle precisely he was in. At a certain point, the vehicles reach an intersection and split up. And at that moment, these analysts had to make this very difficult decision. Do, you go, do we go left or do we go right? And it, it basically came down to a flip of a coin. Well, what if you could watch the whole area at the, whole, at the same time? That is the principle behind what I wrote about in this book, Whammy, uh, this, this, this technology that uh, cost me so many hours of sleep, where you basically get a giant camera, and you watch an entire city at once. The idea being that you can follow thousands of vehicles. And even if you don't see the vehicle and the thing of interest in real time, you always have the footage to view later. The, the sort of genesis, I should note, of, of this technology is actually from the movie Enemy of the State, which is a movie from 1998 with Will Smith. And it's about this rogue cell within the National Security Agency that pursues Will Smith because he has some evidence that they want. Uh, and they deploy a whole dazzling array of technologies they put trackers in his pants and his shoes. They put a, a camera in his fire, uh, in his smoke detector. But without a doubt, their most terrifying technology is their surveillance satellite, which is able to, it seems, view the entire eastern seaboard all at once. And it has a video capability, and it watches the Will Smith character as he scuttles around DC. Seeing the satellite in operation is truly, truly terrifying. And as far as anybody knows, it didn't exist at the time. Well, one night at a movie theater in 1998, an engineer working at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab went to see the movie with his wife. And whereas everyone else in the audience was no doubt terrified by what they saw on screen, he was absolutely thrilled. He thought it was amazing. And he thought, we should do this. And so he rushed home and left a message with his supervisor saying something very simple. I have a great idea. Call me. And so this scrappy team, they you know, worked on some ideas. They wanted to think about how digital surveillance could you know, be used in an airborne capacity. Ultimately, they strapped some cameras together. It was all pretty scrappy. But they were able to watch a very large area. 
And then the CIA got involved and became very interested in what they were doing because they could use it to unravel networks of insurgents in Iraq where these networks were really wreaking havoc on US service members with ambushes and IED attacks. If you have a very wide area of view, it doesn't matter if you don't see the IED go off at the very moment. You can rewind to that moment in time and see where the people who planted that IED came from. Not only that, you can see where they went, but it gets better. Once you've seen where they went, now you have a location associated with this insurgent group. So then you can track all the other cars that came to that location, over to other locations. And in theory, you can find the people who play the really big decisions in this group. This was obviously thrilling to the CIA because they were really trying to find a way to identify these groups that were essentially, you know, looked like any other civilian. And so they fast-tracked this technology. It went through an incredibly rapid series of development cycles, culminating with the, the system that graces the cover of my book, Gorgon Stare, which is an Air Force system, which continues to be in use this very day, operating in, at least as far as we know, Afghanistan and Syria. A congressional report just called it an absolutely crucial uh, capability. Everything about it is classified, basically, but what we knew is that it has made a tremendous difference in that original role. At least that is the, the claim <clears throat> that is being made on behalf of your sources, right? I mean, yeah, yeah absolutely. Because I think what we learn from the history of surveillance programs uh, in the United States over the course of the last almost 100 years now is that oftentimes these claims of, of efficacy don't necessarily pan out. Um, an example, of course, would be the Patriot Act Section 215 Telephone Metadata Program, what's more commonly known uh, as the Call Detail Record Program. Even though that program was exposed as stopping exactly zero attacks on the United States, in 2015, the Congress, in its infinite wisdom, went ahead and reauthorized the program anyway. And I think that's one of the things that concerns me about not just this technology, but a lot of the technology that's out there right now, whether we talk about facial recognition, um, other forms of biometrics, things of that nature. These programs have a really nasty habit of getting funded and taking off and developing a life of their own and never really getting the kind of scrutiny that they need. So to the best of your knowledge, has any inspector general, either within the Department of Defense or any of the service inspector generals, ever taken a look at any of these programs to see if the claims actually match reality? Oh, they, they certainly have. Uh, you know, the, the technology actually faced very much of an uphill battle. Uh, there were a lot of skeptics. There were a lot of people that said, well, you know, if you get uh, one megapixel camera with a predator, why would anybody need more than that? Um, there was also some very scathing uh, development and testing evaluation data that came out about some of these programs. Um, and also, there is some evidence that the technology has, as you said, escaped beyond its original constrained set of, uh, set of uses. Uh, one um, senior officer who was involved on the analysis end of the Gorgon Stair program um, said that it had been useful for counter-narcotics operations mm -hmm. in Afghanistan. Now, that had nothing to do with what the CIA initially intended for the technology. But once it's there in battle, <clears throat> those checks don't necessarily 
apply. You use the tools that are at your disposal. Um, so I, that being said, I, I feel like the budget data, in a way, speaks for itself. You know, there are numerous ongoing development programs. The Army has new programs to develop similar capabilities. So does the Marine Corps. The Air Force is continually investing more in the technology. And one gets the sense that that probably has something to do with the fact that it has shown, at the very least, tremendous potential in one form or another. And actually, I should add, there is one data point that I was able to get about these operations, which is that there was one system, uh, a set of four aircraft called Blue Devil, with one of these wide area cameras. And according uh, to one document I saw, in a three-year time span, it was credited, and that's a direct quote, credited with the capture or killing of more than 1,200 people in Afghanistan. That, to me, is a very tiny peek into what exists behind the curtain. So you, you just referenced kind of the, the use of this technology in a counter-narcotics fashion to kind of make sure that we're, we're being as fair as we can be with respect to the technology. Any technology ultimately can be used for good or evil purposes, as we have seen, right? I mean, a lot of the same equipment that's used to manufacture pharmaceuticals can be used to make nerve gas, right? Well, the, there's a flip side to this story, too, and I think it's important that we actually kind of talk about that, and I'd prefer to talk about it up front rather than, than when we're kind of pressed for time at the end. Let's take a hypothetical here. If Google had its own capability here, how much better would Google Maps be? And how much better would your traffic management and control system be oh, if, if you were able to kind of employ this technology? Yeah, absolutely. I, I interviewed one um, uh, official, uh, or, or rather a sort of senior executive at uh, Sierra Nevada, uh, which is the contractor that was the prime contractor for Gorgon Stair. And he was actually driving in DC while I was speaking to him. <laughs> and uh, obviously, the traffic was incredibly bad. And um, I did a little background on this, and the technology can be used to identify choke points in real time. It can be used to gather data to create traffic models to figure out how to best optimize the flow of traffic through a city, how to space and time your traffic lights, for example. Um, but there's more to that. Um, a, about a year before I started working on the book, I was writing my bike home from a bar in Brooklyn, and I witnessed a shooting. Uh, four people, it seems, um, shot a 19-year-old named Taekwon Hart in the gut. Um, they disappeared into the night. I obviously didn't go chasing after them. Um, I contacted the police uh, the next day, and I was in touch with a detective to try and give the information that I had. And then I checked in uh, a, a week or so later, and they were never able to solve that crime. Fortunately, the teenager survived, but it joined this list of thousands of unsolved crimes in New York City uh, every year. Um, had this camera been watching that night, it would have been a very simple question of tracking Take One Heart's assailants back in time from, to where they had come from, and also forward in time to where they ended up hiding out. Even if that hadn't allowed the police to catch up with them that very night, it would have given them an address to 
to work with. I want those people to be brought to justice. I saw this teenager lying on the ground. And if we have the capacity to do so, in a way, it's kind of incumbent upon us to at least make use of it. <laughs> but the story is never so simple, is it? Um, because I also heard about some very terrifying things that can be done with the technology in a domestic setting, which, let's make no mistake, is happening. It is being used, or it, it, there are groups that are trying to have it be used in the domestic setting. It's being used extensively in Baltimore. There have been tests in a bunch of other cities. And just last week, uh, a man who I refer to as the Henry Ford of this technology announced that he now has his sights on St. Louis and Chicago um, to have the, the technology fly over those cities, record an incredibly large area, to solve, as he put it, unsolvable uh, crimes. And the last thing I'll say about that is that it is completely legal. As far as the law is concerned, there is no difference between this man filming an entire city with a 192 megapixel military grade camera and me sticking my camera out of the window of an airplane to take a picture of the landscape uh, as I fly across country uh, for the later part of my, my book tour. It's public space and I have a First Amendment right to do so. Do, Sean, you're the attorney, do you buy that? <laughs> um, well, I think it's fair to say that, that the law has not kept pace with, with what you describe in this book. Um, and, and maybe before diving into a, a deeper legal analysis, I, I think there's another part of this that, that you haven't gotten to yet that you, you explore in depth in the book, um, which is the, you call it ABI at one point, or I guess that's the, the technical term, but, but we're really talking about the artificial intelligence apparatus around it. And, mm -hmm. and this is another similarity to the, the 215 collection, where the increased uh, collection ability um, generates just way too much information for, a, for, for the normal intake process. And I have a specific question on the other side of that um, that does start to tilt towards the legal side, but I, I think we will need you to explain a little bit more to the audience before we get there. Sure, so you know, one of these cameras, a single one, generates a, an unfathomable amount of data. I calculated that you know, it would take like 2,000 iPads to uh, play the imagery from a single camera's frame at any given time if you're looking at sort of real time, uh, real size resolution. Um, as one engineer put it to me, it takes a million people to watch a million people. And sure enough, when the Air Force began analyzing all of this footage, they found themselves completely overwhelmed. A vast majority of it was ending up on the cutting room floor. They could obviously find what uh, happened after an explosion that was known about, but they weren't able to find what Donald Rumsfeld refers to as unknown unknowns. Surely there were so many other things happening in the footage that they simply didn't have time to get to. And so the solution to that is artificial intelligence. Because not only does it spare you the grunt work of having to track individual vehicles, a very simple solution to that, you just say to the algorithm, in theory, look at this vehicle, tell me everywhere it's been and everywhere it's going. You can also say, not only tell me everywhere it's been and everywhere it's going, but every other vehicle it is associated with. Give me a list of every location. And then track all the vehicles that have been to those locations as well. But there's more. Maybe you don't want to start with someone who is a known terrorist. Maybe you want to get 
as the Pentagon would put it, left of bang. You want to get them before they mount an attack. Well, as it turns out, these groups often exhibit some pretty uh, predictable behaviors in the lead up to an attack. They will do some pretty simple counter surveillance. So they'll take U-turns or they'll drive aimlessly to make sure that no one's following them. Well, what if you told an artificial intelligence system, tell me every time a car exhibits one of these behaviors in a city. Now, the, 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 the system, even if it doesn't catch every single one, it will catch some number of unknown unknowns. And that is the true holy grail of surveillance, to find everything that happens that you had no other way of knowing about. And there has been an intense effort over the last few years to automate this technology. A lot of people in this room have no doubt heard about Project Maven, this uh, controversial effort uh, that Google has been involved in and other Silicon Valley firms. Uh, its first sprint, so to speak, was to give some automated capabilities to soda straw footage. Now it has turned to wide area uh, motion imagery. And though that has received far less attention, it's something that we should all definitely be thinking about. Because I'm not sure we want to live in a city where every time someone does a U-turn that seems a little bit suspicious, they all of a sudden have a crosshair painted on their heads. And, and I wanted to get that out there because from the legal perspective, especially in domestic application, the question of whether or not this is legal depends in part as well on, on how you use it and why you're using it. Mm -hmm. And so we, ha we have, and you talk about this to some extent in the book as well, we, we do have at least two recent Supreme Court opinions, U.S. v. Jones and U.S. v. Carpenter, um, both of which get, get referenced in the book, um, that, that generally speaking stand for the proposition that there is a, an upper bound to what this could look like. Mm -hmm. And so there's the private applications, but the idea of introducing this at, at trial, using it for, as a true investigative technique domestically, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure that I would agree with the contention that it is legal. I, I think you know, unaccounted for, perhaps, in the current. Well, unchallenged <laughs> as yet, you know. Well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> some, yeah, yeah, of us, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, some of us might disagree. Well, well so here's the thing. The, the Jones decision, the U.S. v. Jones decision that Sean is referring to was in 2012. And it involved um, police use of a GPS tracking device on a subject's vehicle, not for a day or two, but for something on the order of weeks. For, I believe it's 20. Days yeah. So, so you're talking about essentially placing a specific device on a vehicle um, and having that person tracked literally, in this case, for, for roughly a month. And the court said, no, that is basically a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So for me, the question is, is Jones applicable here even without the application of an actual device on the subject's vehicle because you are literally now utilizing a very different form of persistent surveillance. Mm. You're just not sticking the, the actual receiver, if you will, the, the, the beeper, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the tag, on the car. So it, it does make me wonder whether or not Jones you know, would potentially be operative here. But your point is there's no actual case that you're aware of in any federal jurisdiction right now where this is actually, and isn't part of the reason why that may be the case that, as was the case in Baltimore with Ross McNutt's persistent surveillance systems, they did everything they could, the Baltimore PD, to keep the use of that system absolutely secret. They did not want the public to know about it. City officials maintained to this day that they had no knowledge of it, led to community outrage, all the rest of that. Isn't this pension for secrecy 
this penchant for using a designation known as law enforcement sensitive on information. Isn't that essentially one of the reasons why we probably haven't seen a challenge to this kind of thing? Oh, no, without a doubt. I mean, if you think about how recently uh, Congress has begun to pay attention to um, cell site simulators, these, things, these <coughs> devices that track our, our cell phones' locations, um, I think that's largely attributed to the fact that the FBI, if it ever allowed a local uh, law enforcement agency to use the technology, they had to uh, sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. And you're absolutely right that in Baltimore it was a secret operation. And the reason it was secret was because it wasn't funded by the city. There was a Texas billionaire philanthropist by the name of John Arnold who actually gave the city enough money to run this program to see if the technology really did have the potential it seemed to have. As a result of that loophole, the Baltimore Police Department did not tell the mayor, it did not tell the state legislature, it did not tell the city council, it did not tell the public defender. I mean, the list goes on. I was lucky enough, however, to find out about uh, the, this, this operation while it was happening, although I was sworn to secrecy. And I, I spent two days in Baltimore observing the city along with these analysts and their counterparts in the Baltimore uh, Police Department. And it was incredible what this technology was able to do. I sat in, uh, I should say, on, on, on a, uh, a briefing for three detectives who are working on a murder investigation of a shooting that was actually very similar to the shooting that I witnessed. And the analysts showed how they had been able to track this man's assailants for hours following the shooting and also leading up to it. One of the detectives said it was by far the best briefing he had ever seen in his life. The other detective almost had no words. He was trying to find a way to make sense of what he had just seen. And he said, it's like that movie, Enemy of the State, uh, <laughs> which, I mean, I almost fell off my chair because at the time, nobody knew that the technology had actually been directly inspired by uh, Enemy of the State. It's something that I, I, I reveal with the book. But then following that, invest, uh, that, that briefing, I stepped out onto the street. And I knew that the airplane was watching me. I looked up into the sky and I couldn't see it because it flies very high. And sure enough, it felt pretty uncomfortable to know that I was being watched. But far more uncomfortable, I will tell you, is seeing everybody else going about their business in the city, knowing that they are being watched by a technology that they probably can't even fathom, that they don't even know exists, and they have no idea. To me, that felt wrong. That felt fundamentally wrong. This technology watches everybody, and nobody knew about it. So it's wrong on a sort of moral level, in that sense, a sort of visceral level. Uh, it's also wrong in, in terms of the fact that because of that secrecy, the city council didn't have an opportunity to, to weigh in on it. The, the, the state's attorney didn't get an opportunity to weigh in on whether this, this evidence would be admissible in court. And it ended up... Um, having a whiplash effect for the program, because when it was finally revealed, there was so much outrage that it had been kept secret that Baltimore police had to, had to cancel it. So Jenna, what, as you were reading the book, what struck you about the journalistic techniques and, and his ability to actually get these people to talk to him? I was kind of floored that people who had worked at some of the most secret labs in our country uh, and had worked on super secret stuff at, at my former employer, CIA, but, but other agencies as well, 
we're actually like eager to talk to this guy. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Spill I mean, the beans. I mean, it's funny when you report on sort of this intersection between technology and the intelligence community. Sometimes you happen upon these topics uh, that people are excited to talk about. You know, they've worked on these things, they've developed these new godlike tools, and they want to brag about them to a certain extent. And especially within the intelligence community, um, particularly sort of within the research labs, I think that there is this space that kind of exists pre-classification, if you will. These people are scientists. Um, they may have sort of a different frame of mind when, when discussing these sorts of things. Um, and I, I would like to hear more about your process of reporting. I was astounded by the amount of information in there. Um, but I also, on top of that, would love to bring up the AI issue as well as a journalist who has covered sort of the intersection between technology, AI, and the intelligence community, something I'm often struck by is sort of the reliance on this godlike tool um, and the tendency in which, in its sort of early stages, is very prone to error. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wrote about um, the CIA's use of covert communications technology and using that to connect with sources on the ground in China, Iran, and it's, it's essentially, you know, a web page, maybe a source is really into yoga. So it's, it's a web page that they go to and say, it looks like they're browsing about yoga, but in reality they're communicating with the agency. And um, over-reliance on this tool that was not that secure led to the deaths of these sources around the globe. Um, so I, I feel like looking at the errors of that, paired with particularly AI, if we rely too much on AI, I think that's super dangerous. Um, where will computers make mistakes? Yep. When you were looking at these algorithms, did people talk about how dumb they are at this current stage and if we're rushing headlong into something that we're not really prepared for? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'll start with the first question. And coming from Jenna to say that my reporting you know, was, was up to scratch is tremendously high praise. And of course. so I will, I will probably get that tattooed on my arm later. <laughs> Um, it was funny, when I started researching the book, I would tell people in the sort of community of journalists that I, I navigate that I was writing a book about Whammy and Gorgon Stare, and invariably people would say, are these guys going to talk to you? And I started to get a little nervous myself, but as it turned out, it was exactly one of these stories that you refer to where people were willing to speak to me. Um, and there were a couple of reasons for that, I think. Uh, one was that, yeah, they're, they're proud of what they've done. In the, the sort of core development period of this technology, the growth in the power of the cameras actually outpaced the growth of, uh, of, of microchips, of computing power, which is described by Moore's law. I mean, that is an astounding uh, achievement, if you think about it, because we're talking about the period from the early 2000s to sort of you know, five years ago, you know, computing really improved in that time. Um, so they wanted to talk about that and, yeah, maybe brag a little. But much more important, I think, was that they had a sense that this was an important story. This was a story of broad public interest and that they almost had some obligation to get it out there. In fact, one of my sources, when I finally reached him, he said, Arthur, in a way, I've been waiting for this call for 15 years. And I said, why? And he said, because we have to answer for what we've done. You know? uh, they have had a sense since the very outset of this program that they were creating something formidable. There was one incredible moment right in the, the sort of heaviest moment of the development cycle when they felt like every single day 
um, was a day that they uh, were not saving US service members in the field by getting these IED networks rolled up. And everything broke down. And they were in Florida, actually doing surveillance over all these towns around Palm Beach uh, without anybody knowing about it, classified. And they all went down to the beach. And apparently they all just sort of sat on the beach and were a little overwhelmed by the enormity of what they had done. That perhaps they had set off a process that they would no longer have any control over. Um, and another thing that really amazed me about these discussions I had, in every single one, I intended eventually to bring up the question of privacy. You know, even if these guys were talking about a fairly constrained set of uh, military uses, I wanted them to talk about privacy. And without exception, every single one brought up privacy before I had a chance to, because they were thinking about it too. Um, which just gives you a sense, uh, one, of their role in this discussion. I think it's a crucial role that they have to play in this public dialogue. Um, but also of the technology itself, that it does raise these difficult questions. To your point about uh, artificial intelligence, you're right that it, um, it's, it's failure prone. You know, one of my favorite anecdotes is that there was a group at Colorado State who was developing this uh, recognition algorithm uh, for looking at video surveillance. And uh, the, 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 the system was very impressive in being able to detect a woman and detect that she was turning around. But as the researchers put it, it missed that she was carrying a bowl of fruit. Now, you can't trust a system that misses a woman carrying a bowl of fruit, can you? I thought it was kind of, kind of strange, uh, a strange prop to use. Um, there are a couple of things at play there. One is that they don't care if they miss a, even a large number of the suspicious activities. As long as they catch more than they would be able to catch by human analysis alone. And that's a pretty compelling idea. There's also the fact that they know that this stuff is going to get way more capable over time. You know, as I was speaking to them, they were all just starting to uh, use this technology uh, called deep learning. Um, and they found that it had tremendous potential uh, in this application. But your question raises what I think is the key issue with regards to automation in surveillance, which is the question of trust. Right? Not every analysis by the computer is going to be based on fully robust data. And so the computer needs to give you a sense of how much it, it, it trusts its own analysis. It needs to say to you, this is 99.9% .9 likely to be true. Or it needs to tell you, uh, I'm not really sure. But if you think about it in a law enforcement context, that is incredibly problematic. Because it says to you, I have a 71% uh, confidence rate that there is about to be an armed robbery. Do you send the police in with their guns drawn? Do you sort of meander over with a single patrol car? And what if the computer gets it right and you didn't pay attention? Well, next time it gives you a 71% confidence analysis, you're going to send in the whole SWAT team. right? What if? It has a very high confidence rate, 95%. And it was just some, some teenager playing, playing ball on the street. Well, the next time it gives you a 95% uh, confidence analysis, you're not going to trust it at all. I feel like you know, it's not going to be long before a lot of these police departments start to have very dysfunctional relationships with their AI. And that not only 
is problematic because it means that the effectiveness of the technology will be compromised. But it's also problematic because people could really, uh, could really get hurt. But there's another, there's another layer below that as well, and, and you do get into it in the book, and I, I think it's some of the most fascinating parts. But it's not just that 71 is a complicated number to interpret, um, which is certainly true. But I, I'm going to read uh, two passages that really stood out to me. Um, as a matter of policy, most behaviors for one of the uh, pieces of software involved here track vehicle uh, events of interest, and included in those are, quote, keep distance far, keep distance close, passing, flip-flop driving, uh, when two cars pass each other repeatedly, approach, retreat, parallel driving, dropping off, aimless driving, and meeting. And presumably those factor, things like that proxies for that factor into that 71 number um, or, or, or some, some analog to it. And then even more alarming, and this goes back to some of the legality question, um, and I, you know, I just think this is incredibly important, and thank you for doing the research and building the record here, uh, additional... Uh, markers identified by a secret Pentagon report, so for anybody who likes to file FOIAs, I, I hope there's one out on this in the next 24 hours, Pat. Um, <laughs> and, and those include uh, name, gender, age, weight, religion, skills, biometrics, values, race, email address, and even personality. Traits. Red flags. <laughs> and, and, and so I think the, you know, the, how, how this question is framed is, is, is wildly important, right? If there, and I'm, I'm curious about, generally speaking, where you fall in, in the, the broader spectrum from the, the Ross McNutt evangelist for, for this kind of work type and, and you know, maybe the more privacy hawk type. Um, but just the granularity there it inspires so many deep, you know, not just legal questions, but philosophical questions, right? I mean, these are, these are, value, these are, these are uh, qualities that, that even in a war zone, um, I think, would inspire some pause in terms of, of triggering life and death decisions. So, you know, is that, what are they doing about that, right? I mean, you talk, you get all of these great interviews in, in this book about, you know, from the evangelists who, who have, re reflect pretty much every take that one could imagine, including, you know, rah, rah, let's do it, all the way to, I had to stop working on this. Mm -hmm. It's not clear that they're all talking about these issues. Yep. They recognize the issues that you bring up broadly, what are we going to do about the 71%, so, you know, how do we address transparency? But these are fundamental issues. And I also, it, it honestly makes me question, how well do these systems work in the absence of those things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it touches on a really important point, which is that the reason this technology is significant is not solely because it is powerful in a vacuum on its own, but because it is emerging at a time when we have the capability to find out a person's name and gender and religious beliefs and their associations using things like social media analysis and uh, you know, wireless communications interception. Uh, when you bring all of this information together and then when you apply big data analytics to it to, to find that a person is not only doing a suspicious set of U-turns in the middle of the night, but they've also posted some information uh, on, on Facebook that shows that they have a particular leaning, political leaning, that may be of interest. Um, that is tremendously powerful. That is tremendously worrying. Not only because it has the granularity element, but also because it touches on the automation element and the idea of confidence scores. Uh, and also because it raises these questions of whether it leaves anything 
that can remain private in, in this day and age. There was this really incredible passage that I found in, in, in one document talking about how a system that would bring all this information together could have been used to find Osama bin Laden. Um, and it does so by doing exactly these things, identifying suspicious driving behavior, cross-checking it, and so on and so forth. Um, the answer that these folks would give you uh, to your sort of broader question is that they have a single mission in mind. They have a single task, and they will stop at nothing to do it. I mean, they are absolutely dedicated to saving people's lives. And in a way, I came to realize, after initially being a little bit frustrated by that answer, that that's the role that they play in this ecosystem. You know, you, you, you can't expect the lion to decide that it's suddenly not going to eat a gazelle because there aren't any gazelles you know, left anymore. Um, you know, these folks are in this technology space, and they will do everything that they can. Uh, and yeah, they have some sense that something needs to be done, and some of them will go further than others in suggesting what can be done about it. But in a way, there are others in the ecosystem that then need to respond to it. It's what you, you spoke to in your earlier question about whether there's anybody auditing this stuff within the intelligence and defense community. My answer is that no, not, not particularly. Perhaps when they talk about the use of drones domestically, there are some privacy audits, but you know, it, I don't think it's necessarily gone far enough. And in a way, that's why I wrote the book. That's why these guys were willing to speak to me, because they've done what they did. Maybe they're happy with it, maybe they're not. And now it's sort of our problem to deal with, in a way. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put those words exactly in their mouth. But that is the situation. The cat is very much out of the bag. And not only is it out of the bag, the cat is evolving. It's turning into this frightening tiger with many eyes and ears and other ways of listening to us. And it's automated, and it can do all these frightening things. And it's, it's miniaturizing. So now a camera that used to weigh 1,000 pounds weighs 30 pounds. And you can put it on a drone. Uh, one engineer I spoke to calculated that with 72 drones equipped with one of these 30-pound cameras, he could watch the entire island of Manhattan. And not only could he watch the entire island of Manhattan, because they're low-flying drones, as opposed to one single high-flying aircraft, he could see around buildings. He'd actually build a 3D model so that now the police would be able to have a, a 3D explorable environment of the city. Imagine a really realistic video game of Manhattan, right, where people are moving around, but those are real people. And you can sort of fly around uh, in this virtual but not virtual 3D space. Um, that's where we're headed, you know. And these guys are not going to pause, I think. Yeah, talking about this level of granularity in the data, one sort of more popular vector for conversation, I think, recently is what happens if an adversary steals that information? Did you talk to your sources about how they're protecting it? Because constantly, we sort of seem to charge into these spaces where we collect it all, but we don't actually protect it. Um, and then, oh, do with it. oh, wait, China has it all now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And they're adding it to the OPM data and the Equifax data. And, and are people thinking about, about that? Possibly? Oh, yeah, very much so. And 
the answer that you'll get is that trust us. You know, we'll, we'll, we secure this data. You know, and I'm not a cybersecurity expert, <laughs> so you know, I, I don't ask them uh, to show me the code that they're using to secure these systems. Um, but that is another huge question. Uh, the, the, the scenario that I imagine is that you have uh, a city with a very well-regulated wide area surveillance system. Uh, and in this city, on one day the system's operating, there happens to be a, a Black Lives Matter protest. And uh, a, a hacker associated with a white supremacist group gets access to that data. And now they can track every single protester who attended that protest back to their homes. I mean, the entire city of Baltimore just got hit by ransomware, so it's yeah. not theoretical. No, no, no. Well, to your <laughs> earlier point, it's not just, I mean, the, you know, if we assume that if this gets deployed, well, if this continues to be deployed domestically, I should say, thank you for the work again, uh, that, that international terrorism and, and, and clandestine use, those are, the, those are, for instance, you know, bases for, for FISA surveillance, right? That's, that's the, the stuff that, we, that the government tends to lower the standards for, for accessing um, for the purposes of national security, <coughs> though I may be. May. Um, they, the specific way that they use, for instance, the call detail records that they get is to contact chain. And it's not just the one person you're looking at, and, and you did talk about this before, but it's the, everybody that they talk to afterward, all of that contacting on the other side. And by the time you get two degrees out, which is the law under Section 215, um, you are talking about a, a program, in this case it would be under you know, constant monitoring the, under the whammy system, you're talking about definitionally surveilling people who not only aren't suspected of doing anything, the vast majority of whom haven't even been in contact with the original person that you were trying to follow. Absolutely. And that is just so much different <laughs> yeah. than what we have before. Oh, absolutely. One of the tactics the, the Baltimore Police Department experimented with was not to just track uh, people who had been involved in shootings, but people who appeared to be witnesses of shootings so that they could track them back to their home addresses and have two police officers knock on their door and try and extract testimony. Now, we all have a right to withhold testimony if we, if, if we don't want it, and if it's just a, a police officer casually dropping by our house, you know, intimidating though that may be. Uh, you know, this is a way for seeing networks. I mean, that is by definition what it's for. And we are so in interconnected, as, as Sean mentions, in all of these different ways, that the only possible sort of effect that I could imagine from this is the, this chilling effect. Now that I know that a, a surveillance system will potentially put a crosshair on me uh, if I drive through a neighborhood with a high concentration of people who appear to be involved in the drug trade, um, because it determines that I, because I parallel park next to this car, I have some association with that person. I'm not going to go to that neighborhood anymore. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's interesting. I found this, this one uh, report um, that talked about some of the principles of wide area surveillance. And it said, um, we, with wide area surveillance, this was a Pentagon report, uh, a joint operating manual, we want to give, and this is a pretty much a, a, a very close paraphrase, we want to give the adversary the sense that we can perceive their, even their very intent, not just what they're doing, but what they plan to do. And we want them to look constantly over their shoulder, even if we're not directly watching them. That's all well and good if you're dealing with a violent uh, terrorist, but the technology will have the exact same effect domestically. 
And it doesn't help that it's called Gorgon Stare. <laughs> 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 that's, that's very much intentional. You know, all of these systems have very formidable <laughs> names. The civilian version of Gorgon Stare, which has not been, as far as we know, deployed uh, domestically in active operations, although we know that uh, FBI and Department of Homeland Security have taken a great interest in it. It's called Vigilance Stare. That's not really toning it down very much. There's also Constant Hawk, Blue Devil, as I mentioned, Angel Fire. <laughs> Argus. Argus, well, yes. There's a lot of Greek mythology there as yeah, well. I, I, I think if that's history that. teaches them anything, they'll change it to something boring once they get scrutiny. Yeah, that's exactly. That's what typically tends to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it further doesn't help, and it, it brings together a lot of the different things we've touched on already, that these, these, these Ray Harryhausen you know, uh, uh, programs are predicated on race. Mm. And and religion, yeah. and you know, I'm I'm really curious how much when you interview people like Ross McNutt, they talk about transparency and they talk about these things, and, and as somebody who supports it, supports transparency around these lines, you know, totally hurt. But what are they doing to get to these fundamental questions? Yeah, I mean, is there any? Do you see a way for them to actually strip out some of these more obviously problematic components? I suppose, uh, such that you know, it would be something that would be palatable. I mean, it's not clear to me that it ever would be, but, mm. but you clearly see, you know, vectors for use domestically. And I don't see how that could possibly happen on the, you know, in the absence of, of tackling these first. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. Uh, there, there is no doubt that there need to be strict controls. Uh, Ross McNutt's company has a company privacy policy, so they can go above and beyond what's required of them by the police departments they're working with. And there are some pretty sensible rules in there. Things like there will be a meticulous log of every action by the analysts who access the imagery, so that no analysts start following their spouse. Uh, for example. Um, they create minimum operating altitudes to, to ensure that the technology doesn't have the resolution to identify people's uh, faces. Um, but in a way, it's not these folks' responsibility to hold themselves completely to account, nor is it particularly wise, because they are subjective at the end of the day. Ross McNutt says to me, uh, I will not do political surveillance. But, and this was literally his next sentence, I will do a World Bank type of thing where you have 20 agitators, anarchists, trying to make trouble. Well, you know, if you look at the historical record, some very fine people have been referred to as agitators. I mean, think about how, you know, the, 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 the civil rights movement was, was, was spoken about at, at the time. Uh, there was another really chilling story, another engineer, uh, who developed this technology and is trying to commercialize it, said that he, um, he used it one day to fly over the, the Michael Brown protests in, in St. Louis and Ferguson uh, following the shooting of this, this black teenager. Um, and he said that it was simply a test, <laughs> that he, uh, you know, he just wanted to test out some algorithms against a large crowd. So the people on the ground were test subjects. They were test subjects, oh, very much so. Yeah. And um, he had also told me in conversation that he vehemently opposes the Black Lives Matter protest. Mm. He had even referred to some of the protesters as thugs. Um, and so I asked him, well, OK, fair enough. You weren't breaking any laws. But if you saw anything that raised concern, would you have told the police? And he said, of course, you know, that's my responsibility. 
as, as, as an upstanding citizen. But what's his threshold for what counts as a concerning activity? You know, he says, oh, I think that this pixel on the screen uh, threw a brick through a patrol car's window. Here's his address. Go wild. Um, you know, if that capability had existed during the Selma to Montgomery march, uh, who knows where we'd be today? Because those were exactly the same you know, rationales that were used against those groups. And so that's why you can't just, uh, you know, I, I have no reason to doubt that these guys, and, and I should be sensitive to the gender element. By and large, they are men. Most of the people I spoke to were men. Uh, in fact, the only person I spoke to who said I would not want this flying over my own backyard was one of the women I interviewed, Sheila Vaidya. Were they mostly white as well? Uh, yes, they were. They were mostly white. Um, and I think it, it is relevant that the engineer who flew over St. Louis uh, is, is white. His wife, however, who also vehemently oppose, opposes the Black Lives Matter protest uh, movement, is black. I was fairly confused uh, by, by, by that point. Um, uh, but you know, there is that subjectivity element that um, was very, very palpable uh, in, in, in all of this, even though they have the best of intentions. I mean, they want to have a peaceful society, but we all have different ideas as to how to, how to get there. And perhaps the people with the access to that technology are not the ones who should be calling the shots as to how it's used. Well, <clears throat> within the, the law enforcement community and within the, the national security community especially, it's an extremely mission-oriented culture. But, but the issue is, how is that mission defined? Right? And the mission is always get the bad guy, get the bad guy, get the bad guy. Right? I mean, that is the message that the public, politicians, a big slice of the press sends right? on pretty much a regular basis. And that's, that's why I think a lot of skepticism, essentially, has to be applied um, to some of the claims of some of the advocates here. And on page 180, um, <laughs> You have a passage, I've got to read this. The, the interlocutor in question is Mike Meerman's. Mike Meerman's overlapped with me on the Hill uh, when, when I was up there, and he was on the majority side, the Republican side, of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And, and this is what he said, kind of in response to, to some of the issues that you were raising. The fact of the matter is, Meerman's told me the first time we spoke, repeating a line that he has honed from years of operating in the surveillance industry, is, the U.S. intelligence community has the ability to spy on you, but it does not because, and here's the secret, listen closely, he paused for effect, the U.S. intelligence community doesn't care about you. Um, Mike, if you're watching, buddy, <laughs> you might want to rephrase that. You might, might want to go back and, and rethink about that. Um, when Mike was on the Hill is when Senator Chuck Grassley revealed in 2012 that the NSA Inspector General had found that NSA employees were misusing NSA systems to listen in on the conversations of either their current spouses or former spouses or former lovers. And this wasn't one or two people, this was at least a dozen, and those were just the ones they caught. So I think, for me, because I've been in this town for so long and because I've worked both in the intelligence community but also on the Hill, and like Sean, I've been around for a lot of these surveillance battles over the last 15 years. 
What always concerns me is the, the back-end process, essentially, for trying to keep tabs on this stuff. Because you can, you can pass a law, and this is what the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was ostensibly designed to do when it was passed in 1978. It was designed to actually prevent the stuff that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is actually being used to, to do today, which is engaging in an awful lot of mass spying on Americans. And, and the problem that we have, and this is the, the point that I really want to engage you on, is our, our system, as my former employer, Representative Rush Holt, would say, our, our constitutional system is supposed to be self-correcting. But my, my caveat to that is it only self-corrects if we as citizens engage, right? What gives you reason to believe that we have a better than even shot of being able to kind of get it right with this technology. Because in many respects, I'm like you. I, A, I'm fascinated by the technology because I was an imagery guy for my, my whole career. So this, I love this book. <laughs> Superbly written, beautifully edited. But I know the mentality that drives an awful lot of folks in the intelligence community. And I, I, I worry especially about the mentality of folks on Capitol Hill who seem entirely too eager, too willing to just let things slide. We, we had this month, just last week, another example of Congress basically not doing its job of taking a hard look at an existing surveillance program, in this case, the FISA Section 702 authority. In fact, we had an amendment offered by Mr. Amash uh, of Michigan on the Republican side and Ms. Lofgren of California on the Democratic side, which in previous years has easily passed the House and in one year passed it by a veto override majority with 293 votes. And this year it fell short by 175, uh, with only 175 votes. So I think what I fear and what I want to hear you address to the extent that you can is what is our hope for actually being able to kind of get it right with this technology? Well, the simple answer would be that there are cases in the past where we've got it right before. Um, you know, we are, um, at least at a local level, we have uh, fairly strong protections against warrantless um, wiretapping of our phones so that our private communications are, uh, are protected. I know that's com complicated, you know, at, at the national level by, by the foreign intelligence uh, work. Um, but the, the more abstract answer I'd give to that question is that we really have no choice but to be optimistic. You know, you would think that having spent the better part of four years working on this book about all these pretty frightening technologies, I'd find it hard to sleep at night and I would be fairly uh, pessimistic about our prospects. But I don't see that as being an option because I don't think the people who are pessimistic will really do anything. I don't think people who are pessimistic go to their town council meeting. I don't think the people who are pessimistic write to their congressman. I don't think the people who are pessimistic challenge these technologies in the courts. Um, so one of the, I guess, saving graces about this technology in particular is that it is palpably scary. It is not scary in a sort of abstract sense. You know, you talk to people about big data analytics and it's a little hard to wrap one's head around it. But when you tell someone that there is an eye in the sky watching them unblinkingly, 
that makes sense on a more intuitive level. And I think the, the recent history sort of speaks to itself in that regard, that every time so far a city has revealed that it either has this technology in use or is intending to use it, it has been derailed by public pushback. So perhaps we've reached a technology that is really one step too far, a technology where people say, no, wait a second, we care about our privacy, but we're not going to be watched from the sky persistently. That's, 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 that's just not going to happen. Um, I think we can use that to our advantage. Uh, to date, there has not been a single congressional hearing about wide area surveillance technology. Not, there, not, no public hearings that we know. No about, public right? hearings that we so know. So we, yeah. we don't know whether or not House and Senate Intelligence Committee have necessarily held closed hearings. And just to jump in here real quick, as kind of a historical note, not a single document from the House or Senate Intelligence Committee has ever been transferred to the National Archives. Um, that's another area where we need some more transparency. I just had to get that plug in because I think it's, it's so important to, to our ability to actually see whether or not the committee, I mean, in many obvious ways, the committees are not doing their jobs. But when the committees themselves who are charged with overseeing these programs are themselves not being transparent in the way, essentially, uh, that the law and I think the Constitution requires them to be, we should have some concern. But uh, at the state and local level, you see hope, in essence. Yeah, I, I, I do see hope, because it's easy, in a way, to talk about it. It's easy to explain what this does and why it could potentially be beneficial and why it could potentially uh, be dangerous. There has not been a single Congressional Research Service report that has addressed the topic uh, in depth. Um, my hope is that that begins with a level of, of public awareness. That was one of the, the, the main motivating uh, factors behind uh, this book. And I think that when people do know about it, they do have a desire to take action. But there is a very important caveat to that, which is that law enforcement by nature will always operate according to what the rules do say, not according to what the rules do not say. <laughs> Okay? And I'll give you an example of that. Let's say we create a law that's very, very robust, that creates all of, all of the, the limitations that we could possibly imagine on aerial versions of this technology. And a police department puts it on the top of a skyscraper. It says, well, no, this is, this is a ground-based system. We have no reason to comply with these rules. So uh, the, tech, the, the, the regulation for this technology has to, one, uh, take into context all of its potential iterations. It has to be future-proofed, which the only solution to is thinking about this as a process rather than a single goal of developing a, a golden chalice-like regulation that will be completely watertight uh, forever. Uh, and that there is an emphasis on making sure that the rules are complied to as they are written, but also as to what they do not say as well. Um, and I should also say that there is a reason to be hopeful about a lot of this, because we've seen cities take these actions. San Francisco just passed a very robust municipal ordinance that requires the city to disclose its intentions to purchase any new surveillance technology, so the Baltimore operation would not have happened, and to submit that technology to a thorough review prior to use with strict standards and regular audits to make sure that no one gets lazy in enforcing these rules. I think that's a pretty, pretty solid step uh, forward. But 
to have for that to happen at, at you know at a larger scale, I think a lot of people are going to need to participate. And so the one final thing I'll say is that a lot of the way we talk about these things can be alienating for mm -hmm. certain groups. You know, I'd imagine that some of my sources feel a little bit alienating, alienated by seeing us here on stage talking about you know their intentions and how evil this technology is. Um, and I think that's a little bit unhealthy. I I, I think that even these groups need to be brought in uh, to the conversation. I think at the end of the day, that is probably um, healthier. And so I, I do hope that happens. There's maybe an analog here with respect to the whole debate over body-worn cameras, mm -hmm. right? And, and one of the issues there has been, and I'm sure it, it applies in orders of magnitude here, is the cost of storing this stuff. Because there are a lot of police departments that have blanched at you know, having their officers go out for 12-hour shifts, all this stuff gets recorded, how long do you keep it, uh, what is the public access process for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Talk, if you can, about the magnitude of the storage challenge here. No, it's, it's absolutely huge. But in a way, uh, the technology also creates this interesting loophole that um, doesn't really work with something like a body-worn camera. So I'll give you the case of Baltimore again. Uh, Baltimore has a, a, a citywide policy that if they have any surveillance data that is not relevant to an ongoing investigation, it has to be deleted within 30 days. Fair enough. But when you have a camera that watches the entire city, there are crimes happening every single day. So you can hold on to that data indefinitely. Um, data storage is, is becoming uh, a lot cheaper. Um, you know, I, 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 that actually did not come up as a big concern among these groups. They seemed to not worry that they would be able, you know, that they'd be losing things. You could chop up the data in certain ways. Maybe at the end of the day, you, you cut every third frame of it so that now you only have one third of the storage that you, uh, you had previously. Um, and then you automate it, you compress it, you do all sorts of things. Uh, there are technological fixes that need to be considered in that. And then the other driver that I've heard about with respect to a lot of state and local police departments moving away from helicopters because of the cost and moving towards drones. Do you see a movement like that accelerating or potentially being a factor that accelerates the adoption of the technology we're talking oh, about? Oh, very much so. Because now, you know, a, a police department in a town with 300 people uh, can put an eye in the sky, something they couldn't previously do. There are, uh, the most recent count of my colleague who tracks uh, this issue, Dan Gettinger, um, more than 900 uh, public safety departments in the country that operate drones. These are very small drones. They still could not carry one of these very large cameras, but there are a few things that are converging. The, the, the surveillance technology is getting smaller, so eventually it will fit on a, on, a, on a drone of that size. But also the airspace is continually opening up more and more to large drones that would be able to carry uh, something uh, like this. And then eventually you'll get to a point where you have these swarms of drones, not to give you terrible nightmares, that can watch a, a whole area very um, persistently and actively and intelligently. Um, and that'll be... a, a a few more years down the line, but um, something to perhaps keep an eye out for. And looking more closely at the, the usefulness of this technology, I think you can 
easily sell the idea of an eye in the sky as a panacea. You know, it's going to solve all these problems. It's going to see everything. It's going to catch every bad thing before it happens. But I mean, just immediately thinking, I, I can think of all these different problems it might have. You know, for example, North Korea. Like, it's very cloudy. The terrain is very mountainous. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard a lot of imagery analysts talk about how that's a really difficult target because of those various uh, is. issues. Uh, you could have that. You could have. People shooting down drones. We literally just saw that in Iran. Um, I mean, with the Middle East, it's it's kind of flat, you know, arid. We mm -hmm. it, it's easier to kind of use an aerial technology like that to to see these things. But um, do you think that people have thought about these issues and are starting to work to 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 counter that? And on the other side, do you feel like it's being billed as is this panacea in a way that gets them a lot of money, but might? Uh, leave out the, the potential issues that they'd run into? Um, Mike Meermans actually gave a very good answer to that question. Okay. He said that our job never ends. We can develop the best system ever, and it can seem like it will watch everything, but our job is not done. We will continue to do what we will do. We will go better. We will go bigger. Uh, if we want to see, and this he didn't exactly say, but you know, it's certainly reflected in the programs. If we want to see through a cloud, we will see through a cloud. Sheila Vaidya actually developed a system that could pick up very faint traces picked up through the, through the clouds and actually sort of extrapolate those into full views of the ground. Now you can see through clouds. And maybe you don't use a camera. You use a multispectral imaging system. You use a synthetic aperture radar. Uh, these are all minor roadblocks uh, in the way. No one's uh, throwing up their arm. And if another system comes along that is able to achieve these same goals more effectively, then you know, Whammy will get put uh, to the side. Um, but, uh, and, and I should say, no one is referring to it as, as, as a sort of cure-all or as the, the only game in town. Uh, they all repeatedly told me, and I think it is an important point to stress, that this is an important technology in context in the context of all the other systems that are out there. In fact, a lot of the whammy systems that are in use today probably have other surveillance devices aboard them. So that once it detects something suspicious happening in another part of town, it cues a telescopic camera to take a closer look. Or it cues a, a, a cell site simulator to track every cell phone in the area. Or it cues a radar to see through that little bit of cloud cover. Um, it's when all that stuff comes together that I think um, you really get to that sort of panacea style of, uh, of viewing, or more godlike style of viewing, if, if that's more your flavor. So we kind of started this with enemy of the state. So I'd, I'd kind of like to, before we go to the Q&A, kind of end with enemy of the state and this whole idea of a satellite-based capability. And you spend some time talking about that. Walk us through kind of your understanding of where things stand with, with that kind of development. So as we know from recent events, uh, drones uh, are very vulnerable to anti-aircraft systems. Uh, we are approaching a time when uh, the wars where we had uh, access, unfettered access to the airspace are now transforming into wars where we don't have that, that, that privilege. And so uh, a, in theory, a simple solution to that is to put these technologies into space. And what I found is that there is a convergence of a number of technological trend lines uh, that take us in, in that direction. 
Uh, whereas a satellite used to cost a half a billion dollars and uh, cost enormous amounts of money and resources to launch into space, now you can launch a CubeSat for you know, less than $100,000. Uh, once the imaging technology is small enough to put on a CubeSat, now you have a CubeSat that can collect wide area video. Um, okay, well, satellites travel at about 17,000 miles an hour, and so they only get about 90 seconds over a target before they cross over the horizon. Well, since they're so cheap, why not just put a whole bunch up there so that once the first one crosses over the horizon, the second one is ready to pop up on the other side to pick up the slack. You know, you, you, you start to get to a point where you can see things pretty persistently. We're already at a point today where most of the Earth is uh, at least photographed on a daily basis. Right? And that is at still a relatively early uh, time in what people refer to as this sort of new space revolution, um, which, as one engineer uh, put it to me, leads to a fairly inevitable conclusion. The idea of wide area surveillance writ large, as he put it. Um, the whole Earth viewed persistently unblinkingly, like Google Earth, but moving. You know, I, I took that with a little bit of a pinch of salt, the way one might, you know, uh, respond to someone saying, oh, we'll all have flying cars in a couple of years. <laughs> um, but then, a couple of months after that conversation, a company called Earth Now announced that they were going to do exactly that. And then not only that, they had financing from Bill Gates and SoftBank and a number of other eminent investors who probably don't take bets on totally you know, uh, ludicrous ideas. But they didn't say who they're going to allow to use it, what they're going to use it for. We still have an information void when it comes to, uh, to Earth now, but they've got their eye perhaps on us. We've got a little bit of time for some Q&A, so I'd like to avail us of the opportunity to do that. Again, wait for the microphones to come to you. And then I'll ask you to identify yourself and any affiliation, and then please do phrase it in the form of a question. Uh, down over here in front, gentlemen here in the striped polo. Thank you. I'm Leon Weintraub, a retired member of the Foreign Service. I'd like to ask you how we move from the permissible to the impermissible. If we start at one end with a policeman on a street corner, then we have four policemen on that same street corner, one at each intersection, and then we have four policemen on each corner of a, a so-called a bad neighborhood, mm. and then four policemen on every intersection of the city, and then to the spy in the sky. Mm. Where, when do we go from what is, is permitted to what is not permitted? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good question. You know, this, in a way, is the, one of the fundamental questions of modern life, is how we balance safety and privacy. Um, you know, some will tell you that it, there's a very simple answer to that question. Anything that makes us safer, we should embrace. Because it will only be a problem for those of us who 
don't make society safer, which is a pretty troubling way uh, to, to, to think about it. Um, but we, I think, are now coming to the point where we realize that actually, no, that, that, that is not a, a, a one-sided equation. Look at all of the cities around the country that have um, removed traffic light cameras. Now, a traffic light camera, in theory, is a, you know, a pretty um, uh, sort of you know, pretty simple technology, I think not hard to, to argue with. I mean, we don't want people running traffic lights. But people said, yes, we understand that. Uh, but we still don't want everyone to, the, the, the city department, to photograph us every time we, we, we run through one of, these, uh, one of these systems. And so I, my sense is that there will be a, more of a conversation along those lines. Similar to how the equation about our relationship with the social media companies has changed. Before, we said, wow, this is, this is a great service. I'm happy to give them all my data if we even understood that to be the case. Now we're like, actually, hold on. If, you know, I, I don't think that giving up all my data is worth the minor increment of convenience that I gain uh, as a result. So I think that there could be a sea change uh, happening. I, you know, again, I, I want to be an optimist about these things. But did, did you want to jump in? Other questions? Uh, down front, right here. Oftentimes, when a technology is developed, there are good applications for the civilian society. I mean, 50, 60 years ago, there was no such thing as private satellite. Today, I don't dare go anywhere, Tech 95 South, without turning on my Google Maps. It gives me, gives me real time. Mm -hmm. what, some, what are some of the positive applications do you see coming out of this technology? Sure. It's a great question, and I think an important question. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, there were hundreds of people stranded on their rooftops around the city of New Orleans. And the responding agencies had to spend a great deal of time flying helicopters with so destroyed cameras around the city to try and find everybody. Well, if you had something like Vigilant Stare with the, an infrared capability particularly, then you could just park it over a city and everybody who's standed, stranded on a cool rooftop will light up. And so you'd be able to find them, in theory, much more quickly. Uh, so disaster response is one. The Forest Service uh, operates a small fleet of these systems because you can watch uh, a very large section of a fire all at once. So you have some smoke jumpers, and they are behind the line of the fire. You can anticipate before the fire closes them in. Uh, there is a lot of interest in using the technology to monitor borders and pipelines, for example. Now, obviously, that can go either way. Uh, there um, is one company that has used the technology to uh, find polar bear dens uh, in Alaska to make sure that oil and gas companies operating in the area maintain a minimum distance so as to not disturb uh, the, the, the animals. Um, one of the models that was proposed to me is that since the technology is so expensive, instead of having a single uh, entity operating it and keeping the data to themselves, you could have a company provide something like a Google Earth service, where they put the information out there and anybody who wants it can buy in. And that is predicated on this notion that there are potential applications of the technology that we haven't even imagined yet. And that by doing so, you, you, you distribute the cost, you give rise to innovation, 
and uh, we could have this everywhere. Uh, you know, maybe you have a real estate company that wants to track foot traffic at a location before setting a price, or, uh, or an insurance company. Insurance companies have taken a great interest in this technology for appraising damage, or maybe seeing what happened, who's to blame in a, in a traffic accident. Um, so that is one of the models that has been proposed as a sort of winning option. Again, though, <laughs> we need to ask ourselves whether we want to have a moving Google Earth any given time. You know, I mean, I guess I would use it to make sure the beach isn't that crowded before I you know, decide to go there. But I can imagine there are more nefarious uses that people could conceive of that we haven't conceived of yet, uh, too. No, I, I would think you know, the US Coast Guard's got to be super interested in this technology. Oh, yes, they, they are. They've been testing a system called VIDA, which is incredible, actually. It's, it's a fairly small camera but it has a tremendously powerful computer vision algorithm that is able to detect any object on the surface of the water that is not the water itself, which sounds simple enough, but it is not, because when you're operating at those altitudes, the, the, the sea is not one monolithic plane of color. I mean, all the reflections look very much like... Uh, you know, like objects floating in, in the water, but they have shown tremendous success with that. And the benefit is that you could put it on a pretty small drone. Uh, in one exercise, it took one of these drones uh, about 50 hours to uh, scan in detail an area the size of whales. And this is a, a, a drone that maybe costs $100,000. So, um, so yeah, the Coast Guard is definitely has its eye on it too. I think we have time for one more. Let's go up over here, gentleman in the blue striped short sleeve shirt. Thank you. Uh, Peter Higgins, um, formerly in the intelligence community. Um, I see um, in many US cities uh, around dusk the launch of very large drones that, that hover over the cities and move occasionally. Um, and, and I'm curious if you think they're part of maybe this type of activity, and why wait till dusk? Hmm. They have lights on them. Yeah, and um, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm not familiar with that happening. Uh, at the moment, the only groups that are using very large drones are the military under some very constrained circumstances. Uh, so if they're not operating in restricted airspace, it's um, because they have a single individual permission for something like um, you know, search and rescue or, or wildfire fighting uh, support. Um, so again, I'm, I'm not totally familiar with it. I mean, if you're talking about a, a drone with an infrared capability, then maybe it really only shows its value at night as opposed to uh, a daytime system. Which notably is not legal domestically. That's actually a very good point, Sean, <laughs> is that uh, this technology, is, the, the aerial surveillance systems that I'm talking about that are legal are the, the daytime camera versions. So the ones that would be like my iPhone pointing out of the airplane. Uh, window, but there uh, is a strong legal precedent that bars the use of infrared camera technology uh, to surveil people, not just from the sky, but uh, from ground level too, um, <coughs> without a warrant, because it is much more uh, powerful, and because it has this odd uh, standard of being a non-publicly accessible 
technology, uh, as, as the Supreme Court uh, would put it. That being said, a, a you know, billion pixel military grade camera does not, to me, sound like a publicly accessible technology either. Uh, so perhaps it is time that, as you mentioned, uh, the, the law begin to catch up a little bit with the reality uh, that, that we live in. That being said, we have seen how originally it was only the government itself that had the resources to buy drones because of their cost. And now any of us could basically go to a Best Buy or you know, fill in the blank, go online or whatever. Which, which raises a very interesting uh, possibility. Yeah. In Baltimore, uh, the camera recorded a number of police shootings. And that could be used to audit the claims of police officers on the ground. The camera also recorded movements around locations that were later searched under a warrant and found that the basis for that warrant was actually uh, dubious at best, that it did not exhibit uh, patterns that resembled those of a, a site associated with the drug trade. That raises a very interesting um, possibility that yeah. perhaps we should all think about. All right, I want to thank Arthur Holland Michelle, Sean Vicka, and Jenna McLaughlin for a great panel. There are books available out here in the lobby for those of you who have uh, been fortunate enough to come to the Hayek Auditorium. To all of you here in the auditorium and online, thanks for coming out.